here in Mark chapter 3, the immediate thing that I think happens to most of us is we drop our eyes down to the very end of this passage in Mark 3. And the issue that really obsesses us somewhat intellectually is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Well, we'll come there, but let's start at the very top of the passage. And I'd ask you to ask three questions as you look at this passage. I want to call them the three greats and you. One is the greatest question that needs to be asked about the man, Jesus Christ. The greatest question you can ask about Christ is, who is he? The second question that needs to be asked is, really, how great is this gospel? The great question, who is Jesus? The great question, how great is the gospel? And then the third one is about a great warning. Do I need a warning tonight? Do I need a spiritual warning from the Lord this evening? Jesus is in a house. The crowd is around him. And there's a lot of discussion about Jesus in that house. And they're asking the greatest question that is found in the scriptures. It begins back in Matthew 16. Of course, Jesus made the the question very carefully there in Matthew 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And then Peter, the wise uh, extrovert, answers for everyone. Well, we know who you are. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now take that question. Who do you say that I am? It's a great question. It's a question that when you go into this world, you want to ask and help people to formulate. Who is Jesus for you? Who does he claim he is? What does the Bible say about him? What does the scripture say? And in this text, there are at least two answers given to the question, who do you say Jesus is? Who is this Christ? The first answer is not very complimentary at all. Jesus is crazy. He's a madman. He's a lunatic. And if you're familiar with the the writings of C.S. Lewis, you can sort of say, oh, I've read that in a chapter in Mere Christianity. You know, the part about the poached egg. It's a very famous quotation, powerful quotation in Lewis. And concludes that section by saying, don't ever allow anyone to say to you that Jesus is a madman. He is the sanest man that you could ever find. The family are around him, and it's the family who come to that conclusion. Well, we all have family, don't we? These are his cousins. 
not his brothers and sisters. You'll find them down in verse 31. So this is the, the extended family. I grew up in a farming village, and when I go home, and when I walk the street of the little village where outside of the community where I was raised, I could walk down the street, and within five to ten minutes, the first time I took my wife there, she was absolutely amazed, I could say, oh, that's my cousin on my mother's side. Oh, that's my cousin on my father's side. Oh, that is Grandma Bannerman's first cousin. That's mine as well. And you would walk down the street. And then they would also, I would notice that some of them smiled too. It wasn't smiling, smiling because, oh, Jackie is now back at home. It was smiling because he had become somewhat one of those religious fanatics. You know, he had been converted. And he had spoken of his testimony, and people had heard about his conversion and knew that he was a preacher now, and he was quite one of those enthusiastic preachers who even believed in born-again Christianity. And so you walk the streets, and you hear it in your back, And then you say to yourself, for a brief moment, it's just a little glimpse of the life of a disciple like the Lord, but just a little. What were they saying about Jesus? You see it right there in 21. His family heard about this. They went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. He's crazy. He's a lunatic. Now, you look at the situation and say, well, obviously they were confused family, they were confused relatives, maybe they were jealous, maybe they were envious, maybe they had no understanding, they were completely um, confused by his conduct, because he was doing miracles and he was talking to people, people who were somewhat strange, by the way, who had sin issues in their lives, who were notorious sinners, and it was somewhat of an embarrassment to the family. And so the family began to say, who this Jesus, he is crazy. Now, they weren't the first people to say that. There were others, and others would follow. Over in John 10, of course, you read it at these words, the Jews were again divided. Verse 20, many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to a madman? So it would happen again. Many people have said it of Christians. Festus said it of Paul, remember, in Acts 26. What did he say of Festus uh, to Paul? Oh, you're a madman. You're insane, Paul. You've lost all your marbles. What is the greatest question that you can help someone ask? What is the greatest question that you need to ask? To begin with, it is this. Who is Jesus Christ. Who is Christ? Now, the first answer is that he's mad. Well, you must judge. And the people you witness to must judge. It goes on the next verse, and you will notice they give a totally different answer. And the teachers of the law, that is, the great theologians who knew their Old Testaments, we hope, in some measure, but they don't seem to, Amid the te- and these teachers of the law came down from Jerusalem. They were on a theological conference tour. He is possessed by Belzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. 
Now think of this. People acquainted with the Bible, people acquainted with theology, people who are acquainted with much of the Bible, yet having no saving grace and no saving faith and experience of the Lord. Belzebub, Lord of the Flies, a reference back to Bel and Zebub in the Old Testament. Satan, it's this description that he's a man of spiritual conflict on the other side of darkness. You almost see the shadows here of some kind of a Star Warish thing here. The point was this. These men were asking the same question, the great question. Who is Jesus Christ? The first group said he's mad. The second group said, no, he is satanic. He is evil. Now you study your scriptures and you ask yourself, is this evil that the, those who are without sight are brought to light and they can see again and they see? Those who are in need are blessed. Those who were spiritually impoverished and in need of great blessing are healed so that they are renewed spiritually. You answer the question. Does this look like a madman to you? Does this look like an evil man to you? Does this look like Satan himself to you? A demon? How silly. And yet how close they were because they were readers of the Bible. What we need to do as we witness and as we speak to people is force everyone out of Switzerland. To force people out of a state of neutrality that says, Oh, I am neutral when it comes to Jesus. No, you cannot be neutral when it comes to Jesus Christ. Who do you say he is? Where do you stand in the audience? And what are you saying? Neutrality to Jesus Christ is impossible. Now, Jesus Christ, he takes bold leadership, but he will not let it stand. He, he enters into the debate and he gives them a series of parabolic illustrations, metaphors. He talks about, well, Satan's house is divided. That's a very strange thing. The next one is you had a strong man sitting out at the door, sort of like a bouncer type, and no one could get into the room, into the house, and he was holding everyone in. And you'd say to yourself, who do you think? What do you think is going on here? Satan opposes Satan? Use some elementary logic. And if you would just think logically, you scribes, you teachers, you would realize that logically you're making an absurd deduction. Now who's insane? Who's illogical? And Jesus sets the record straight. The great question. Is he mad? The great question. Is he evil, wicked, bad? The great question, is he God, almighty in the flesh? Back in John 10, in verse 20, he is demon-possessed, he is raving mad. Why listen to him? But others in the crowd said, no, no, not so easy. These are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? You see, the great question 
of his madness, the great question of his evil, the great question, no, must lead and head you in to see one reality. This is what the scriptures declare. This is what the scriptures are pointing to in one great statement. He is the Lord of glory himself. He is almighty God come here to earth. He is altogether glorious. There's the great question. Now, is this gospel great that we speak of? You use the word gospel, I use it. It's a standard cliche in all Christian vocabulary and discussion. Gospel, good news. We've got some good news to tell the world. Is it really good news? How good is the news that we've got? How good is this adjective, good, for this news that we have? I want you to to see how good it is. Look down at verse 28. I tell you the truth. Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you. Here is Jesus' grand logical deduction now from all of this. This is the truth the world needs. And what is the truth that the world needs? It is this. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven. Oh, I know you want the but. But read the first before you read the but. How good is the good news? And is the gospel really good news? This verse is a great verse that says to you, this gospel is good news, and it tells you how good it really is. That there are men and women who commit great blasphemies against Jesus Christ and against the Lord. And there is news for them that is good. There are men and women whose past lives are cluttered with debris and circumstances and sin and guilt of all descriptions, all descriptions. And the good news is good for them. And the good news is so good, it's so good that it's even good for those who have been upstanding churchgoers all their life and have never murdered and never stolen and never committed adultery. And yet they're not good. Because their love for the Lord or their love for one another is also tainted by sinful imperfection. Not one of us is good. And as you come to this 28th verse, you come to a great gospel that I hope we'll just fall in love with all over again, Sunday by Sunday, day by day, as children of the Lord. And if you don't know that gospel, I hope and pray tonight that you will come to understand how good this gospel is for all Sins and blasphemies. The wideness of the gospel. The fulfillment of what is spoken of, of course, in the first chapter of Isaiah. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. 
Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And here as you begin to think of this great passage, what do you begin to see? You begin to see an incredible extent of the goodness and the wideness of this goodness. You know, there's no one I can read better than dear old J.C. Ryle, first Bishop of Liverpool, and I'm sure you're familiar with his read his thoughts. And as he said this, these words fall lightly on the ears of many persons. They see no particular beauty in them. Verse 28, I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But to the man who is alive to his own sinfulness and sin deeply sensible of the need of mercy, these words are sweet and precious. All sins shall be forgiven. The sins of youth. The sins of age. The sins of the head. The sins of the hand. The sins of your tongue. Your imagination. The sins against all the commandments of God. The sins of persecutors. Like Saul. The sins of idolaters like Manasseh. The sins of open enemies of Jesus Christ, like the Jews who crucified him. The sins of backsliders like Peter. All, all may be forgiven. Do you find yourself in that list? What is so good about the gospel? What is so great about the gospel? That at the very heart of the gospel is the pardoning words of forgiveness. And of that pardon is not the basis of what you have done, but the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. It doesn't matter how far you go in Christian circles, if they are truly Christian, you have to be confronted with the centrality of the goodness of the gospel, which always brings you back to the forgiveness of your sins, whatever they are. How wide, what extent, what basis, What wonderful teaching. He pardons me. He bears the punishment. And from that in my life will overflow a new forgiving spirit that removes and takes away the bitterness of the unforgiving heart. And there comes about a new creation, a new man, a new woman, a new person by the grace of God overflowing in the gospel. There's a great question. Who is Jesus? There's a great gospel. And I cannot think of anything more great that I want to talk about and that I hope you want to talk about to people. The greatness of a gospel 
that is the gospel that forgives all sins and blasphemies. Well, that's number two. What about number three? Do you need a warning tonight? Do any of us need a warning? Well, I'd like to say that in a sense, all of us need spiritual warnings to wake us up on occasion. And on occasion, some people need very much a warning when they have come very close to some very precious truth. Now we have the but at verse 29. A great question, a great gospel, and a great warning. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of eternal sin. He is speaking here primarily, probably, to the scribes, to the teachers of the law. That is the immediate context. But he very well may be speaking to his own family members, his cousins in the village. You see, they've had a wonderful opportunity The gospel has just been preached to them. The gospel invitation has been given. The wideness of the gospel has been declared. It has been opened up before them. Whether they're family members who are falsely under false notions, whether they are teachers of the Old Testament under false notions as well of who is Christ. But when you are given repeated opportunities, there may come a point where the opportunity ends. That is what we're beginning to look at here. That is where we are heading in this text. Let me read something to you, and I don't think anyone has really surpassed it. An old scholar by the name of Cranfield said it well. It is not said that the scribes have actually committed this sin already. Jesus may actually be warning them of what they are in danger of about to commit. You will notice that Jesus does not say, that's it, over for you now. Way to hell. He doesn't speak like that. There is actually mercy in this great verse that has created a lot of spiritual angst for a lot of God's children, and some of it rightly so, but some of it also in confusion. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ is in front of them. He is blessed and endowed by the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in his personage. These men have amongst him, these women have come amongst them, and they have said, oh, he is a crazy man, he's a fool. These men have gathered around them and said, oh, he's got Satan in him, he's a, he is satanic, he's demonic. And imagine of it, declaring of the Holy Spirit and of Christ. Demon possession. This is an affrontation against that which is holy. The spirit of holiness. And as Jesus speaks to them, he speaks to them and he says, you are on the brink of a great spiritual disaster. 
holiness stands in your presence incarnate. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is here among us. He is baptized in the Spirit. He is the Son of God incarnate. Open your eyes that you may see. And yes, we know all the theology. We pray, let their eyes be opened. Well, that's what you need to pray for these men as they're here in the text. Let their eyes come to see. Let them understand what is happening here in this section of Scripture. They were attributing to Jesus terrible things. And Jesus was warning them. There's a friend in America I've corresponded with a few times, Kent Hughes. He used to be the pastor at Wheaton College Church in Wheaton, Illinois. And he tells a story of a man that was just a friend. And he would go and visit this friend often. He didn't come to his church, but he would come and see him. And so this man was dying, and he went to the hospital to visit him. And he said to his dear friend, he said, Now, who is Jesus for you? And do you believe in Jesus? And his his friend said, No, I believe in God. And I have been a good man all my life. Pastor Hughes said, No, that wasn't my question. I asked you, Who is Jesus And do you believe in Jesus? The man repeated himself again and said, Well, I believe in God. I have been a very good man. I have never stolen from anyone. Pastor Hugh says, That's wonderful. I'm delighted to know this. But my question was, Who is Jesus? And do you believe in him? Finally, the man looked at him. And as he looked at him, he said to him, If I were to believe in Jesus Christ tonight, it would upset every philosophical notion in my head. Everything that I have stood for my entire life, I am not prepared to do that. A few hours later, the man died. You see, it is about who is he? Christ. It's also a reminder to say to a man at the very brink of eternity, at the very brink of death, That all your wrong notions and all the way that you have lived that has been wrong your entire life, that too can be forgiven. And you can come to know the beauty and the glory of even a life that has been lived completely wrong. can be made right by this gospel. But on occasion, the warnings will be passed. 
And those are very serious words. It's a solemn warning. It's a warning of a hardening of the heart, a fixing of an attitude against the Lord. And if someone, of course, is troubled by that, there's wonderful hope for your spiritual sensitive psyche has been worked on by the Holy Spirit and what hope there is. May God bless you as you go into this new week. May God give you opportunities to ask questions of people and to help them to ask those questions. The great question, who is Jesus? And what do you believe in him? And to ask the question, how great is this gospel that we have? But also to remind yourself, there are great days of mourning in our lives. And that not every opportunity will be continually repeated. Amen. Let us pray.